0: This week on the show, we give you a brief introduction to randomness. We covered locks grinding NetApple talk to a halt, NetBSD's core team changes a little bit, a tutorial about using QMU guest agent on OpenBSD KVM QMU guests, WireGuard patch set for OpenBSD is available, and a tutorial for running FreeBSD 12.1 on a laptop graphically in this week's episode of BSD talk. BSD Now, episode 352, Introducing Randomness, recorded on the 27th of May, 2020. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Preuschling. And I'm Alan Jute. Welcome to this episode, everyone. We are glad that you're joining us in this episode. We have some interesting articles, as always picked out for you from uh, this week or from recent history, let's say, um, about PSD in general and Unix. Here, the first one is about entropy, which a lot of people should know about.
1: Yeah, uh, so we have a blog post here uh, from WashBear, who's talking about randomness, and he's saying he purposely didn't post this on blog.netbsda.org because he thinks it's too opinionated and he hasn't done enough uh, work in the area to warrant uh, getting to talk about it on the official blog. But he says, a brief introduction to randomness. Problem. Computers are very predictable. This is by design. But what if we want them to act unpredictably? This is very useful if we want to secure our private communications with randomized keys, or let people cheat at video games, or not let people cheat at video games, or we're doing statistics simulations or whatever. (laughs) The traditional way is by faking it. We take various things that are considered hard enough to predict, such as high resolution timing of when certain signals from the hardware are received. Or the output of various sensors that might uh, include environmental noise like temperature. We feed them into a hash function. Uh, then we use the output of that hash function to provide an initial seed for a random number generator. Modern secure random number generators are defined by having statistically random output. Uh, so that's no detectable bias towards returning a certain value. And promise you uh, shouldn't be able to predict their future outputs. Uh, However, more recent hardware has introduced facilities for the system to receive true randomness from the environment. This includes things like Intel's RDRand and RDC instructions. Most operating systems have chosen not to rely entirely on these, uh, and instead feed their output into the hash function uh, as additional entropy. So that the failure of any one entropy source isn't going to sabotage the operating system. So now we get into entropy and the NetBSD kernel. Recently, randomness in NetBSD was reworked to bring it up to spec with some new expectations. This uh, was mostly done by... Rashtrada? And was uh, prompted by some nagging from me and various others. The most important of these expectations is that 256 bits of good-is-unpredictable values in the entry pool are enough to generate random numbers for eternity, and that you'll... Uh, You don't lose entropy by using it to generate more random numbers uh, when you're using a modern algorithm as a secure random number generator. This remains true even after someone's used a quantum computer to break most of the world's cryptography. But how to obtain those initial 256 bits is the subject of some controversy. If you've rebooted a system a few times, you'd probably be in a fairly good position. On shutdown these days, between shutdowns too, uh, just in case there's a power loss, the current state of the entry pool, uh, as collected during the lifetime of the system, is saved into a file that can be loaded on the next boot. This should include enough uh, sufficiently unpredictable data to give you a pretty good security margin. When the file is loaded, uh, it's combined with additional entropy collected during the boot process. Um, the first time the system is booted, early in the boot process, things can get difficult though. Right? We don't have this previously existing random to deal with. This is also a problem for things like the installer. In the installer, we don't want to pre-distribute an already seeded random number generator because everybody's would be the same and that would defeat the purpose. Uh, But we also want to make sure that's why SSH keys are generated on the first boot rather than during the install, because during the install, we don't have as good randomness. anyway. But we do collect the randomness during the installer and provide that. So on first boot, we do have the randomness we collected from writing to all the disks and, and running for a while in the installer. Anyway, relying on RDRAM might be a mm-hmm. mistake. On modern AMD and Intel systems, and Zoom ARMv8.3, uh, you can use the random instruction extremely early in the boot process. This is one of the main selling points, uh, few setup requirements. As far as we know, on normal systems, Rand is secure. We can use statistical tests on it to ensure that it's a quality source of randomness. Right now, the kernel needs randomness early in the boot process, so early that it can't rely on many of the traditional sources. It takes the output of RDRand, a high-resolution timer, hashes them together, and uses them to see the early-stage random number generator. A bigger concern is the idea that the instructions can be backdoored to influence the state of the random number generator, or even leak that state. A few people have demonstrated proof-of-concept attacks on virtual machines by introducing such a backdoor. That's very scary. So, relying on other sources might be a mistake, though. In NetBSD, we support a wide range of hardware. Some of that hardware sucks. <laughs> uh, recently, Rastrad uh, committed a driver for the true randomness device on all winner ARM boards and ran some statistical tests on it. He found it produced highly biased output. The output is still fed into the entropy pool, but now... We know that we can't rely on just it. Uh, some of the hardware might be small embedded systems that don't have many sensors and no source of hardware or random numbers, and only a few clock timings for something like a network interface controller. A problem uh, Restrad raised is that an attacker might be able to feed packets into the system and produce a more predictable initial state. But is this realistic uh, as, as a threat model? Would an attacker be able to influence network settings and timing? Uh, down to the microsecond or nanosecond to ensure a predictable RNG state. You might want to wait uh, during the boot process for enough entropy to collect for decent sources, but in some cases, on the very worst of terrible hardware, you might wait forever. So, you know, in the worst case scenario, you might want to generate a seed from another machine even, or something. And it goes on to, you know, picking your poison and the ups and downs of each different option, and says, you know, in the end, I'm just some uh, hacker chick and not a security expert or cryptographer, uh, but I do play one online. <laughs> uh, here's my take. We're all screwed. Hopefully exploiting this is hard enough that nobody figures it out. If you want to feel like a NetBSD lawyer, you can read the RND.4 man page. It references some interesting papers.
0: Yeah. Turns out, uh, entropy ain't what it used to be. And so, yeah, it's definitely good to think about good randomness as, uh, it's required in a lot of places in operating systems. Then next, we have a Locks Grinding Net Apple talk uh, on FreeBSD to a Halt over at Rubenerd's blog, which uh, presented at the BSD conferences in uh, Australia, uh, which was nice uh, here. I wasn't there personally, but the talk was recorded. So here's one from uh, the blog here. Uh, I've heard it said, the cobbler's children walk barefoot while possessing the qualities of a famed financial investment strategy, it speaks to how we generally put more effort into things for others than ourselves, at least in business. The HP microserver I share with Clara is a modest affair compared to what we run at work. It has six spinning rust drives and two SSDs, which is ZFS mirrored, not even in a RAID 10 equivalent. This is underlaid with Gally for encryption and served to our Macs with NetATalk or NetAppletalk uh, over gigabit ethernet with jumbo frames. I tried switching to Samba once, but Netatalk was uh, marginally faster for what we do and is way more compatible with the software we use, even with the recent additions to Samba 4 and the fact AFS is deprecated. I also run NFS to serve my FreeBSD Panasonic laptop. Uh, Each of those is linked with an extra article and because they basically only need to back up text, but I digress. So imagine my surprise and irritation when our AFP share suddenly went to absolute Last night, the Mac finder struggles to list directories of NASes as the best of at the best of times, but I could barely load anything worse. The finder would hang when loading folders with more than a dozen items, which required a kill all on the client side. I do still like macOS after all these years, but the fact that network share can bring down everything else with it, reminds me of the dark days before process isolation. This sudden drop in performance was only happening or happened for me in the home environment a handful of times, what was usually an immediate sign one of the drives in the ZFS area was about to beep it. But a pool status returned optimal for the pool in question. So everything's healthy and online. Uh, yes, I'm running these SSDs over USB3 headers. Yes, I know that's bad and that I should feel bad. Cobblers aside, they also say necessity is the mother of invention, sure. So my next uh, check was logs and the issue became orders of magnitude clearer. So here's an an LS from a log directory, var log, and sure enough, you have a 500 gig AFPD.log. Oops. I suppose this is credit and testament to the performance of ZFS inline LZ4 compression. This is a 120 gigabyte boot SSD and it's been written to continuously. I wonder how much I shortened the lifespan of these devices. I cleared the log and the performance immediately returned. Next step is to figure out how that log got so massive in the first place and set a quota for the log data set or a log rotation. Yeah, yeah, whoops.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, a 500 gig log file, you were probably just running out of space eventually. Now, you know, it is a credit to ZFS that you stored a 500 gig log file on a 120 gig SSD. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you were probably also eventually running out of physical space and ZFS does tend to get very slow uh, as you get it more than ninety five percent full, um, yeah. Log rotation. Uh, I've I've been caught out by that by ZFS as well. Uh, log file wasn't getting rotated, but I didn't run out of space, even though I've written a terabyte to the log file because compression. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you would think log rotation is very uh, is basically built in if you have a software or a third party software that just writes logs. That it would also give you a way to like add to new syslog, but many of them don't, and don't expect to run that long and log everything.
1: Yeah, it's uh, the newer versions of FreeBSD have uh, new syslog.d support for user locals so that each package can install log rotate files as part of the package. Um, I don't know how many of them do it yet, uh, especially since you know it only works on certain versions, although I think mm. almost every supported version has it now. Uh, yeah, it, it, but.
0: sometimes it happens that you discover these big logs when you are looking for something in the logs for some kind of error that occurred. And then you're like, whoops, I shouldn't open this file in an editor.
1: <laughs>
0: Just, why, why is this grep taking
1: so long? Oh, the file is half a terabyte. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, so a nice story here from the trenches. Um, yeah, uh, we look for more like these. In our news roundup this week, we have uh, changes to the NetBSD core team.
1: Yeah, uh, so here's a post on the NetBSD announced mailing list from Alistair Crooks, This is Matt Thomas, who has served on the NetBSD core team for over 10 years and has made many contributions including the ELF functionality, uh, being a long time Vax maintainer, GCC contributor and generic PMAP, uh, and also networking functionality and platform bring up over the years. Matt has stepped down uh, from the NetBSD core team, and we thank him for his extensive contributions. Uh, On the other side, Robert Ells, a longtime BSD contributor, has kindly accepted an offer to join the core team and help us out with the benefit of his uh, expertise and advice over many years. Among other things, Robert has been maintaining our shell, liaising with the Austin Group that maintains POSIX, and bringing up uh, to date uh, with modern functionality. I met Robert L's at Asia uh, BSDCon one year.
0: Oh, I don't have a face at the moment, but probably uh, was before my time when I went. The Australian guy that gave the keynote
1: at Tokyo, probably the year before you started coming.
0: <laughs> probably, yeah. Okay, so you have the advantage of having a face to a name. He,
1: if, you, if you remember Kirk's stories about working on uh, BSD at Berkeley and like... Um, sharing one computer and working in shifts. Uh Robert would come over sometimes during the summer. Uh the you know, the off time from the university in Australia and work uh with Kirk on, on the original BSD. Ooh, wow. And stuff. Yeah, he had a lot of cool stories from his stock. I think there's video of that online.
0: Could very well be that they have those because Asia BSDCon has been recording many of the conferences or the talks. Uh mm-hmm. yeah, I'll probably dig in the archives a little bit. So yeah, uh, congratulations and good luck to the people joining the team. And uh, thanks, I guess, are due to the people who are leaving the team as well for their work. And uh, yeah, good luck to the NetBSD Core team.
1: Yes, the uh, the election for the FreeBSD Core team is ongoing at the moment. I
0: guess we will have the
1: results uh, when it's time for that.
0: Yeah, this is the democratic uh, election uh, that we're doing every two years. And the developers have a way to change the project direction or at least the uh, people that are currently on the uh, core team uh, every two years Uh, or put their own name in the in the ring and see uh, how people uh, will join that effort all right uh, good luck to all of these candidates that we're currently running Uh, back to the show we have a nice article here using qmu guest agent on open bsd kvm qmu guests Uh, this is over on undeadly org the open bsd journal And it's from the turtles all the way down department. Uh, In a post in the ports mailing list, they write laundry braille, I guess, shared some of his notes on using QMU guest agent on OpenBSD, KVM, QMU guests. He made a few, uh, oh, he made a few enhancements to undeadly or for undeadly. So experimenting with Proxmox VE since some years, but that also applied to plain KVM, QMU, OpenBSD VMs, Today, I had a look at the QMU Guest Agent feature. There are two links to that for the people who want to know about this a little more. Uh, in the host config web UI, enabling the Guest Agent adds a VirgIO serial device from the KVM command line. So you can see what uh, options you would have to add to the invocation. And in the Guest, this is detected as a new virtio device for which we have no dedicated driver, so it stays unconfigured. So the, when the system boots, uh, it would just give us a vert.io, no matching child driver, not configured message. But looking at the QMU guest agent and Proxmox QM docs, also linked here, there's a way to tell Proxmox to use the ISA-serial device type to say, ah, this is uh, an ISA type uh, device, Okay, which adds another device type to the KVM command line. If you put that in and restart, I guess. The guest will say there's a new serial device. COM0 is used by the QMU console. Uh, So COM1 is now detected as a new device. Yeah, from that point, one can run QMU uh, GA pointing at the serial port with uh, dash F and dash T. Uh, They're used because otherwise QMU GA hardcodes the user local dollar something, and you don't want that. And so now you have... uh, Couple more messages about uh, debug disabling commands. So we have a couple more things for the guest uh, in there. Yes, some commands are disabled. Something is probably needing to fix uh, upstream. Uh, FreeBSD has some work done in that, so maybe they pulled some stuff uh, from there. Uh, after that, one can send commands via the host. You can say QM agent one hundred get host name on the proxmox console, and you get information about just that host. Or you can say uh, get the time on this machine, the Unix timestamp. Is that a Unix timestamp? That's a bit long for a Unix timestamp. Uh, well, uh, or you can say QM agent one hundred get dash os info, and you get the kernel release and the machine architecture. Sadly, upstream hardcodes shutdown arguments in the guest shutdown command, so trying uh, QM agent one hundred shutdown won't work out of the box. But that should be patchable. According to the info command, those QMU commands should work. So you can get a couple of uh, informational messages from there testing shows some are broken at runtime but that allows the host to list these files within the guest so you can say from outside the or from inside the proxmox but still outside the virtual machine you can say list me all the stuff in slash temp and finally this allows a graceful shutdown of the guest from the host of course you can do uh, qm guest exec 100 then dash dash hold dash p uh, issuing the command in the uh, guest, then, and the VM is properly stopped. Hoping that can be useful for people who use OpenBSD and QMU KVM VMs. Haven't found any kind of doc on that specific to OpenBSD so far. Uh, bits to consider ports wise, uh, they think it would make sense to subpackage QMU GA binary. Having to install the complete uh, QMU package with all its dependencies in the virtual machine is a bit much, but we'll see if that's feasible. Fixing hard coded paths in some commands would be nice too. Yeah,
1: uh, interesting to see that there's uh, work on a FreeBSD one already as well.
0: Yeah, especially like um, the outside control uh, is nice to just, in which VM did I copy this file? So you can just, uh, as as shown, do the ls there and let the uh, machine list its contents without having to log into the machine for each of them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, uh, last week's episode featured an article about WireGuard. Now we have uh, one about WireGuard patch set for OpenBSD. Ah, this is also an undead lead. Yeah. Uh, so it says, uh, in this post to tech, uh, Matt Dunwoody announced
1: the availability of a WireGuard VPN patch set for OpenBSD he says, a while ago, I wanted to learn more about the OpenBSD development. So I picked a project in this case, WireGuard to develop a native client, uh, over the last two years with many different iterations and working closely with WireGuard's creator, uh, Jason Donnefeld, um, it started to become a serious project, eventually reaching parity with other official implementations. Finally, we are here, and I think it is time uh, for any further development to happen inside the source tree. So uh, from a WireGuard point of view, this is an official patch set, and there's uh, more information in the thread uh, if you want to dig into that.
0: Okay, cool. Seems like WireGuard is making the rounds. That's cool. All right. Another thing that's uh, very popular, that people like to write about, is uh, FreeBSD on laptops. In this case, uh, 12.1. So uh, here on dataswamp.org, nice. Uh, introduction. I'm using FreeBSD again on a laptop for some reasons. So I expect to read more about FreeBSD here. We'd love that. Uh, this tutorial explains how to get a graphical desktop using FreeBSD 12.1. So this is for a ThinkPad T480. And if you have a recent Intel integrated graphics card, maybe less than three years, you have to install a package containing the driver, which is package-installed drm-kmod. And you also have to tell the system the correct path of the module because another i915kms.ko file exists. And that's what you run the sysrc for, kld underscore list with a boot modules to i915kms.ko. Okay, so this gets loaded uh, early enough in the boot to see messages. Uh, then you choose your desktop environment. Uh, in this case, they chose uh, install xfce. In this case, easy enough package install xfce. Then in your user uh, .xsession file, you must append exec uh, ck-launch-session start xfce4. Or if you want to install Mate uh, or Mate, whatever you want to pronounce it, package install Mate. In this case, you would uh, put in x then .xsession CK launch session made dash session. Or same thing for KDE 5, except use, you put in there uh, package install in KDE 5 and exec CK dash launch dash session start plasma dash x11. Then setting up for the graphical interface, whichever you chose, you have to enable a few services to have a working graphical session mouse D to get laptop mouse support, a Dbus bus for HAL D, HAL D itself for hardware detection xdm for display manager where you log in those four and then you can install them with the commands oh right yeah xorg dbus hell and xdm or oh, i guess xorg or one of them pulls the other uh, in as well i'm not sure dbus
1: is it depends included. yeah it could be uh, but yeah hell and dbus i think you might have to install by yourself or they might already be there but either way you have to enable them
0: yeah to make sure if you put in multiple things in the package install command you they will get deduplicated to do the right thing
1: um, and then power management, you can set up power D, uh, to try to save battery on your laptop webcam D to get, um, support for your webcam and, and other USB devices going. Um, and then, you know, you want to make sure you put your user in the webcam D group so that you'll be able to open the webcam devices it creates.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely webcam support is good to have these days. Yeah. It's a nice and easy to follow tutorial for running FreeBSD Graphical on a laptop.
1: And they also have a link to another blog they found after the fact, uh, that explains uh, how someone else installed FreeBSD on their ThinkPad T480. Ah, with
0: cat pictures on the first. (laughs) Well, the cat is in the background, but (laughs) it works as a cat picture. Um, Yeah. So definitely there's more there. If you want to read on more configuration details and uh, yeah, Good way to start your FreeBSD laptop journey. In the Beastie Bits this week we have a list of useful FreeBSD commands. I guess this list is ever-growing.
1: Uh, so the first one they have is package. lets them install curl uh, and then they use curl to check the weather based on, I'm guessing this is GOIP based, but if you go to wttr.in uh, it gives you uh, the weather core for the next day and a year three. Uh, In ASCII, then they're looking at uh, a tool called WhatWeb, which actually analyzes a website and tries to guess which, um, uh, like web stack it is using, mm-hmm. and that's an interesting tool. I have wondered about something like that a couple of times. I've only ever tried to do it manually, and that's kind of uh, not easy. Uh, and then they're looking at uname-r and FreeBSD version commands, um, a file called. Reboot dash required in var run that's left behind by I think FreeBSD update and other things. The watch command uh, isn't th- there's a command in FreeBSD called watch which is for watching other users. Um and so if you're used to the watch command from Linux, uh, you can install GNU dash watch or CMD watch, uh, which gives you uh, basically you can do things like run the same command once a second and keep refreshing it on my screen, kind of like a like top or some some interactive program like that that keeps refreshing. Um, it's quite useful to be able to watch the output of, you know, even just LS on a file while it's copying, uh, and see the file growing in that example, you can just use SIG info on FreeBSD control T, Mm -hmm. but, uh, there are times when you actually do want to use something like the watch command from Linux, and you can install that as GNU dash watch or CMD
0: watch on BSD. Oh yeah. yeah. That's a nice list of interesting and useful things. Uh, they have something about mysql they have stuff about viewing and manipulating files and logs as well as at the bottom uh, dns-rated commands like dig to find out you know uh, name server lookups yep
1: uh, drill is built in uh so it can be more useful than dig but in general uh one of those tools is often super helpful yep and yes uh on on FreeBSD newer than 10 bind is not included but you can install dash tools to get dig and host and so on back yeah i think hosts again we we have the ldns versions of of drill and host and so on but pretty close
0: cool that's a good list uh yeah then next we have master your network with unix command line tools this is similar but network related Uh,
1: so this post over at itnext.io has more networking and unix based systems and command line tools uh an interesting one they have here is speed test CLI is a command line interface for testing your internet bandwidth. And it says it might hold the key, although not the solution, uh, to why your network is slow, being able to tell, uh, whether it, you know, is the 28 Chrome tabs you have open 28, is not a very high number of Chrome tabs. Right. Benedict. <laughs> no, no, not at all.
0: <laughs> Whistle innocently here.
1: Might <laughs> they show how to install it, uh on python pip or set it up with git or uh, from homebrew on a mac and so on and then they get a bunch of ip commands in here which obviously won't work on bsd
0: yeah this is not bsd specific but
1: uh, trace route things like iftop uh, iftop is a tool i very much like although uh, watch out it can sometimes give you the wrong impression uh when you're using some of the offload features on the nick because then it doesn't think there's as much traffic as there actually is i don't know that might be fixed now i don't know uh, but then you talk a bit about ifconfig, and then, like we said, iftop. Um, SS is Linux's lame reimplementation of Sockstat, uh, but you can just use Sockstat on, on FreeBSD. I don't know if OpenBSD has something like Sockstat, um, but interesting. Uh, and then VNstat, we have talked about that uh, on OpenBSD before on BSD Now. Uh, NetTop, I remember using... Maybe not... The same thing as this nettop but there's that and obviously tools like nmap are very common um and you know tcb dump is uh should be in everybody's toolbox oh yes so that was a, a little light on the bsd specific stuff but uh is still quite useful
0: oh yeah very nice so always good to have enough to to- uh, tools in your little networking uh, tool set as alan said And then uh, we have original Unix containers, AKA FreeBSD Jails. This is a a Twitter thread, I guess, or at least an image. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) yep. Oh, here, see, this is from a shelf in a supermarket.
1: Yeah, so it's uh, a picture of uh, a bunch of Tupperware plastic containers uh, for sale at a store, and they're labeled Unixware. uh, (laughs) And, you know, the obvious Twitter comment is the original Unix containers, aka FreeBSD jails?
0: <laughs> ah, and then people posted in uh, similar things. Oh, yes, nostalgics will be very happy to see these.
1: I'm, I could have made a joke of some kind like that because after BSD can last year, I had to go to the grocery store and buy Tupperware, <laughs> um, because I won the giant, like, one foot diameter cookie, the second to last cookie. <laughs> of BSD can, uh, or whatever. Um, and it wouldn't fit in my luggage in the container that they give it to me in. So I had to buy smaller Tupperware and then like break the cookie like into eight pieces and stack it in those three different Tupperware containers to fit it in my luggage to bring it home on the train with me. You know, the year before, uh, we drove, you know, we put it on the back seat and ate about a third of it on the way home as, as food. But, um, on um, on last year on the train trip, I needed to be able to fit it in my luggage.
0: Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> while you're, while you're there, you might as well do some shopping. All right. Uh, then now it's. Oh, flashback time. 2003 article, Bill joy's greatest gift to man, the VI editor.
1: Yes. I love the little subtitle. Forget that he also, you know, did BSD and NFS,
0: uh, it's VI. That's the living legacy. <laughs> Yeah. yeah a little side project here and there uh, <laughs> that turned out to be much bigger so that article de- definitely is uh, worth a read or it's more like an interview right
1: yeah uh, it's basically written in 2003 when bill joy announced he was leaving uh sun microsystems mm-hmm.
0: yeah so this has a historical context
1: among his list of achievements are bsd unix nfs the ultra spark design and some work on java but it was V.I. created in 1976 that really captured uh, the register reader's heart.
0: Yeah, and there's some myth-busting uh, that V.I. wasn't written in one weekend.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. so this is some excerpts from a Linux magazine interview with Bill Joy back in 1999. But, you know, uh, I personally have never read all this, so I've, I've bookmarked it and we'll have to go back there and,
0: and read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have the FreeBSD journal article, uh, not article, the whole issue, uh, from March and April of 2020 for you about file systems.
1: Yep. Uh, myself and Kyle Niesel wrote an article about ZFS encryption, uh, and how that's going to work on FreeBSD, uh, and how it compares to Geli and what you might want to do and not do and so on. Uh, and then I think it was, uh, Alan Summers did an update on the work he did on the fuse drivers in FreeBSD, uh with a grant from the Foundation, uh, and again, um, Christoph Provost talks about the work he did on the bridge interface in FreeBSD under uh, Foundation sponsorship. There's the letter from the Foundation that each issue contains, uh, a new Faces of FreeBSD, which I think had, had two different people in it, um, the FreeBSD Foundation project update uh, about toolchain modernization and other stuff, uh, reports from conferences. Uh, We might not have any of those in the next couple issues, um, but the last conference they managed to attend before everything got locked down, uh, there's a report there. Um, And uh, the letters column uh, with Michael W. Lucas is always entertaining. And the event calendar, uh, which includes a bunch of virtual events where maybe you wouldn't have been able to travel uh, to go to some of these conferences before, but you might be able to attend them virtually now. And uh, yes. Remember that the FreeBSD journal is now free to read and you can uh, just get it as a PDF if you like.
0: Yeah. Which is great to read on various devices. And, uh, if you are looking to be an author or want to contribute something of an article yourself, then definitely get in touch. We are always looking for people to write. Uh, with the, uh, yeah, pandemic still going on in the world. There's, as Alan mentioned, a little less time for meeting in one place so we have to do the social distancing thing but that doesn't stop the Hamburg people from meeting online
1: yes uh, so my user group which had barely gotten started before we uh, stopped being able to have meetings uh, has had our last two meetings online Um, the one a couple weeks ago uh, Werner Losh even managed to come and join us for a while Uh, and it was fun to have people from uh, far away that never would have managed to show up for our little uh, you know gathering around a table at a restaurant meeting. Um, so we're hoping to take maximum advantage of that while we can. So, uh, it's the second Tuesday of each month. So the next one will be June 9th, starts at six thirty PM Eastern because we kept the time from where we would meet if we were all doing it in the same place. But if you go to hambug.ca, you can, um, check out our website and we talk about it. and the, the ham is for Hamilton where I live, not, uh, we're not talking just about amateur radio. Uh, we have not talked about amateur radio, but there's no reason we couldn't. If, uh, I don't think we have any hands actually attending, but if people wanted to, uh, it's definitely a thing we could talk about.
0: Then it's time for feedback and questions. Uh, as every week we always have, uh, people send us stuff, sometimes a little less than we would like. So if you have a question for us or something that you want to discuss with us, or we should discuss on the show, send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv. And this uh, section will be less empty or more filled, if you want to call it that. Uh, the first one who did that was Lubomir, or at least that we have this time, but Gally and ZFS. So goes like the following. Dear Alan, Benedict and JT, thanks for the nice podcast. You're welcome. I find a lot of interesting things on BSD Now the TV. Well, me too, by just doing the show. I have some questions for you. Okay, here we go. Uh, the first, I have a laptop with one SSD. I have installed FreeBSD 12.1 with ZFS and Galley. These days, I decide to move the installation to a bigger SSD. My first thought was to copy the data with DD, but I have heard that encrypted disks do not do well with DD. I tried cloning the disk uh, with a disk duplicator and a Rico external SATA to USB docking station. But with no success on reboot, I get uh, the dreaded GPT ZFS boot. No ZFS pool is located, can't boot. Okay. I searched the net for any solution to this, but I'll proposed I could find to repair with GPart to enable the Galley partition with Galley configure dash uh, G. did not help. Do you have any idea how to quickly clone an SSD with ZFS and Galley?
1: Uh yeah. So um there's two ways. The one is to basically create a new pool on the SSDs. Uh, and then do ZFS send from the old disk to the new disk, uh, which doesn't actually clone it, it rewrites it. It's different. Uh, it has advantages in that it can defragment the data and give you a, a cleaner version, but it might be. Uh, and the other main advantage it has is it only copies the data you're using. Whereas if you use DD or a disk duplicator, you have to copy all of the blocks, uh, which means you know if the disk is only a third full, you're doing three times as much work, uh, with a full clone with DD or whatever. But in general, Gelly will work fine with DD as long as you might run into problems. If you have both disks connected at once on the next boot, because it will have the same ID numbers, uh, like the GPT, uh, partition table, the, each partition is meant to have a globally unique grid. If you clone the disk, then they both have the same, then it can confuse things, but in general, um, so to debug the problem your best bet is probably boot off a freebsd rescue or installer disk and see what you can see with jelly attach and zpool import and so on uh and you know determine what's there with uh, looking at uh you know gpart show uh and things like that and actually figure out what's on the disk and, and so on and that might help you figure out what's going wrong there
0: yeah everyone dreads that message uh it's <laughs> The harbinger of doom, but you can save yourself from that.
1: Yeah. So if you're getting that one, if you don't get asked for the geli keys, then obviously it's not detecting geli, and the geli configure dash g might be the right the thing that you need. um Whereas if you if that's working, but then you're not finding the disk later, then it's I think uh, geli configure dash b you need so that the kernel knows to mount it later on, and and some other different things but if it's in this point it looks like it's not even trying to do gelly you might make sure that you have a new enough gpt zfs boot that actually understands gelly but if you're copying an existing disk you would assume uh you'd had that on the disk when you copied it so hard to say
0: Uh, or would mfsbsd trying to boot from there and then import it this this way yep Uh, mfsbsd is a, a very helpful rescue system okay um hope that helps you uh, second question here i tried to a send and receive the whole data from the source ssd to another machine where i have enough storage with zfs send and receive on the receiving side i wanted to have the data in certain data sets like zroot slash temp slash from ssd but i had a problem on the sending side the pool is named zroot and on the receiving side it is the same on the receiving side it asked to replace the existing data sets. where did i go wrong there's an option for that
1: right um well in particular when you run the receive command you want to tell it where to put the data set you're sending so well, i think what you actually wanted was zroot slash temp slash from underscore ssd slash z um because because from ssd already existed that's what it was trying to do um, there is also an option in i don't is it in send or receive to strip the pool name off um it's something like dash d or something but it's right i just i don't remember if it's on the send side or the receive side that you do that I think it's the receive side. Anyway, uh, yeah, the, the main page will tell you that, but uh, you don't necessarily need it. Just make sure when you do a receive of a new data set, the name you give it on the in the receive command should not exist. So if you want what was called zroot to be called from underscore SSD in that parent, then just don't have from SSD exist yet and do the receive. Uh, or if you want it to be temp slash from underscore SSD slash zroot, then just add the slash zroot part to your receive command, and because it doesn't exist, it will create it, and uh, yeah, you don't have to worry about it clobbering your your main zroot pool. Uh, yeah, in general, I try to do my receives without ever using the the capital F flag, so that it will never overwrite something, uh, because most of the times that's not what I meant, <laughs> and you don't want it to do that. Um, the one risk you do have there is if you have if you're replicating with the properties, it might you know, try to mount zroot slash temp slash from underscore ssd slash zroot as slash or something and end up, uh, it won't mess up your system, but it will mean that you might have to reboot to be able to access the stuff that were the files that
0: were underneath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why they implemented that option because they saw that, uh, that use case. And so it's, uh, it's a common error, I guess, but nothing that is, uh, too, too trivial, not Not too difficult to solve. Uh, Then the third is one proposal for the podcast. Can you please invite more BSD developers to tell the story, how they started with BSD and possibly to give advice how to start coding with BSD, different coding languages. Uh, I hope it will influence younger people to start using and contribute to BSD.
1: Yeah, that was always the idea. Scheduling has been difficult lately, but we will have to try to do that more.
0: Yeah, um, we need to hunt down people more and uh, they need to schedule time and all that and uh, equipment should work and audio recording and but general it's a good idea that's how BSD now started way back when with interviews and uh, yeah we try to find more people this way or if you are now feeling "Ah, I should do an interview with BSD now because either I haven't done any of them or I haven't done them in a while then reach out to us and we'll be happy to hit the record button with a three-person conference. Uh, then thanks for that question. And the next is Patrick with a question about power D and power D plus plus, uh, let's see. What was the rest Ah, power D plus plus, uh, Patrick writes, first of all, I wanted to say that I really enjoyed having JT on the show recently while Alan was absent recently-ish. Uh, I hope you have him participate more frequently in the future. Oh, JT is participating a lot in the background.
1: Yeah. As long as I don't have to, you know, have gallbladder surgery again, then JT can
0: come on as often as he wants. That, that, we don't have to knock Alan out to just have JT. (laughs) Yeah, same goes for me, I guess. Um, So, yeah, all well intended. Um, Yeah, definitely. uh, JT filled in a very good spot, so that was helpful Um, because otherwise I would have done the show alone. That would be a bit boring. Okay, so I was wondering if you could give some information about previous D and Power D uh, in regards to power D++, I guess. Does Intel Turbo Boost work automatically, or does it need additional configuration in software or the BIOS? How can I test to ensure okay. this is working as? expected? One question at a time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so power D versus power D+ I've not really tried Power D++. Um, I think it's supposed to consider multicore a bit better. I don't know if it achieves that very well or not. I think Colin Percival tried the two and, you know, measured the results of his battery life. I don't remember what the result was though, but you might be able to Google for that. Um, so does Intel Turbo Boost work automatically? Ish. Um, so on FreeBSD, you will have a set of sysctls like, I think it's dev.cpu.0. Uh, and in that one, there will be uh, a node called Freak, as in frequency, uh, and one that has a list of the supportive frequencies. And normally you will notice that, um, you know, it has a, a range of frequencies up to whatever gigahertz your machine is. Um, and then there'll be that plus one, and that is TurboBoost. Um, and so if you're using PowerD or PowerD++, when it thinks the machine's busy enough, it will try to up the clock to the maximum, which will enable TurboBoost. Uh, so there's not anything special you have to do. You can, uh, now the BIOS takes care of actually getting to decide when and how much to turbo boost. That's not really a, an OS thing. Um, but yeah, uh, so you can control it with the CCTL manually and just, um, also if you just set the the frequency to nine 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 nine, it will just automatically pick the highest valid value for you. Uh, and that will work and yes uh, so if you use powerd or powerd++ it will be able to take advantage of hi- uh, turbo boost automatically okay and then how do you ensure it's working that's a little harder um you know depending if you know if you just run like shaw 512-t uh to do with the little built-in benchmark you will probably see a speed difference between you know if you have a 3 gigahertz processor if you're running at freak equals 3000 you'll get one speed and if you run at 3001 you get a little bit more Um, I'm not sure other than that, if there's a a real way to test it, um, you might be able to use the imports. There's, um, the Intel performance counter stuff. I forget the name of the package. though. um, yeah, I don't think it's the PMC It's the PCM or something. Anyway, anyway, there's one tool there and I think it actually can give you counts of how long the CPU spends in turbo boost mode every 10 seconds or whatever. Uh, so you might actually be able to measure it. I've never bothered though.
0: Yeah, there's still some um room left for improvement in the power in the base power D and uh I guess no one is actively working on a replacement. So I guess this port is there to maybe start something new or try a different angle.
1: Well I think the main thing with PowerD plus plus is it was written in C instead of C. Um Oh I see. Yeah, okay. so yeah, Power D does have the slight downside that I think it it bases It's decisions on, uh, not as much on, I think it's on overall load of the CPU, not necessarily how busy one particular core is. But uh, at the time, Turbo Boost didn't support, um, well, actually, I think at the time PowerD was written, there was no concept of Turbo Boost. Uh, And then even separately, Turbo Boost was, you know, you had one setting for the whole system. Uh, Whereas now with the newer stuff, that's less controlled by the OS the BIOS can actually tune different cores to different speeds i think uh, mm. and it gets more and more
0: complicated yeah it's a complex mixture of hardware and software needing to work together uh, the second part of the message goes what support does FreeBSD have for temperature sensing and fan control i read that openbsd's yeah okay so starting with that one question at a time <laughs> no I, I thought it was connected to it
1: so yeah but um though there's a uh, a kernel module called CoreTemp, uh, which supports both Intel and AMD, and it will add information to that dev.cpu.0 and .1 and however many CPU cores you have, uh, and will show the temperature of the CPU core, uh, and like what its maximum is, and a couple other bits of information about temperature. Outside of that, there's not that much. However, in ports, there are tools like the, I think, MDmon, uh which can talk to the motherboard and get, A bunch of stuff about temperatures and control some fans and then if you have something more server like like a super micro machine the ipmi tool thing can be used to manage uh to access temperature sensors and even control the fans
0: Mm -hmm. yeah for servers and uh, similar devices um they read that openbsd sensor framework was ported to freebsd as a google season summer of dogs sorry Uh, season of code sorry i kind of mixed the two up now it's It's summer Summer of code, code. not season of dogs. Yeah. Um, A few years ago, but couldn't find anything about any parts of FreeBSD actually using it. Uh, Yeah. Um, I don't
1: know that I ever went anywhere. And I think it was quite a few years ago now. Um, Also not sure, like, I don't know much about that OpenBSD sensor framework. I'm not sure if that was mostly targeted at regular machines and, and servers, or if it was more about a generic framework for, you know, embedded machines that have lots of weird sensors and, Stuff I never got to play with that much, um, but in general, the main one I've cared about on my servers is the CPU temperature, and I can get that automatically with the core temp thing. Uh, or it was a server, and I was doing IPMI monitoring that stuff, or you know, using Smart to monitor the temperature of the hard drive.
0: Um, I guess this is more about laptops and saving a bit of watts here and there. Yeah, I don't know what else to say.
1: So the things like MBMon, uh, which basically use the same interface that you know. I think the tool called MBMon for um, Windows would use to control the CPUs and stuff. I know back in my overclocking days, when I was in college, uh, I had a tool in my windows toolbar there that would let me turn the fans up and down. So it's like, Oh, I'm going to play a game. Time to turn the fans up. Or, you know, I'm trying to watch TV time to
0: turn the fans down. Yeah. Different use case. Um, again, there's still room for improvement in the power area. Um, but that's currently the state of the system. And uh, if you know someone or are interested in this kind of thing, there's definitely um, work to be done that can help uh, a lot of people, not just servers, but also laptops. Uh, Thanks for your uh, feedback about the show. And uh, that pretty much wraps up this episode for this week. Uh, Definitely tune in next time again. And thanks for listening to this one.